On fox hunts, John would use some of his dogs to track down the foxes. Typical, okay. right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, John owned 2,000 dogs. How the fuck? <laughs> I know. How the fuck do you just own 2,000 so dogs? Many. Oh. <laughs> Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we pick two dead people and talk about their lives. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, James D. Say hi, James. Now this is podcasting. We hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down these characters from the odd and exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that James and I will do our amateurish best to give a basic account of the major events in these people's lives and how they responded to them. We also hope to give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is harder to do, but we're gonna try anyway. So, James, who do we have this week? William Miller and John Mitten. Sounds perfect! Let's head down to the History Lab and see what they're all about. The known and the unknown, the seen and the unseen. For centuries, the world's greatest minds have worked together to create something more than human. And now, for the first time, this beast comes to life in the form of William Miller and John Mitten. Why? I don't know. Uh, so, James. Yes. If you had to pick your dream car, so to speak, mm -hmm. what would you pick? Well, see, the problem with your question is that you assume I like cars. Oh. But I hate cars. Uh, oh. I'm really not one of those guys who's into cars. No, instead, I'm more into chariots. 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 Oh. But not just any chariot. Let me describe this very briefly. So, remember in the old Ben-Hur movie? Car is short for carriage. You totally derailed my thoughts. What was that about Ben-Hur? Uh, um, <laughs> remember in Ben-Hur, that guy has the chariot and has the spikes on the wheels? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would have that, except instead of spikes, I would have flowers that shot water. Just oh. like the clowns wear. <laughs> That's so wonderful. Yeah, and then instead of horses, I would definitely have alpacas. Nice. Alpacas. Nice. Alpacas. Alpacas. Whatever. whatever. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Mm. So that's what I would choose. Okay. Uh, mm. And what would you choose as your car of choice? Well, I would pick two. Um, oh. And they would go on both of my feet. Oh. And they would just be little pickup trucks. Hmm. And I could stand in the beds and then strap myself in. And then I would have like a like a Wiimote or something to steer oh, with. And I would yeah. just drive around town with my little diesel engine trucks. Huh. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. So, uh, computer, please bring up William Miller and John Mitten. So tell me, Aaron, what is William Miller best known for? William Miller is best known for starting a North American religious oh, movement. Fuck, not again. <laughs> this movement oh. is called the Millerite Movement, and yes, again. I can't get away from the zealots, man. It's an addiction. And once you start reading, you realize that they're all connected in some way, and then you can't stop, and then you lose your job, and your woman is... Just goddammit, Aaron, tell me what he looked like. All right. William Miller. William Miller. Yes. William Miller. Yes. Looks like a grumpy, slightly overweight 19th century American president. Ah. Yeah. He has slick <laughs> black hair that goes down over his ears, a frown that would make an elf sad, mm -hmm. steely eyes, and a perfect nose. Oh. Yeah. He's always pictured wearing a suit and is never pictured with an American flag, so he's definitely a communist spy. Without a doubt. Mm -hmm. yes. So, uh, uh, what is John Mitten best known for? John Mitten is best known for being an infamous British rake. A rake. Yes. What does that mean? Well, it's got a, a few different definitions. Okay, I know of one at least. Okay. Well, this man was a 
utensil used to rake leaves. <laughs> <laughs> utensil is not the right noun. Okay, that's why I didn't know that. Tell everyone what the other one was, though. Uh, the other type of rake is kind of like a hellraiser. Okay. Sort of a ruffian, no good, rotten scoundrel sort of ter- type of person. Okay, perfect. But uh, he, he's a lovable rake. Oh. I'm just going to say that. Oh, yeah. So. I love rakes. Tenderly. So tell us, uh, what did uh, John Mitten look like? Well, the best drawing of him shows him riding a horse, wearing full 19th century English hunting uniform, including a red suit, white pants, and black top hat, and surrounded by a bunch of hunting dogs. Ah! So basically what we'll look like when we retire. Yes, perfect. Mm. Yes. So uh, here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking we just move right into William Miller's early life, just to get this ball rolling, huh? You know, it's another... (laughs) <laughs> Another religious leader in early American history. I know, but it's so interesting, and it's so such a part of American culture that yeah. in, back then and today that it's yeah. so worth knowing about. I'm, All right, fine. But okay. Let's go into it. Okay. William Miller had a fairly typical childhood for a kid born in 1782. Okay. Pittsfield, Massachusetts was where he was born to a war veteran of the American Revolution and a woman named Paulina Pelps. Hmm. Not Phelps. When he was four, his family moved to a rural part of New York uh, State called Low Hampton. Hmm. He was homeschooled until he was nine, at which point he was enrolled in a real school called (laughs) East Pulteney District School, which was a brand new establishment at the time with no official schoolhouse. Now, one would uh, would actually be built about 100 years later, and it still exists today thanks to the Pulteney Historical Society. Anyway, according to William Miller's autobiography, he learned to read under the instruction of his mother and with the help of the Bible, a Psalter. What? Which is just a collection of psalms and devotionals, oh. and an old hymn book. Hmm. So just uh, when, so just from that, you get a picture of a family that was pious, religious, and possessed exactly two more books than the average American today. <laughs> but oh. Miller didn't st- stick to the scripture and things like that with his reading. He borrowed books from his neighbors and read late the night by firelight. Nice. All this time, he was also learning farm work and was being encouraged to turn to his this trade in order to make a living. Huh. Yeah. But Miller's passions lay elsewhere. He wrote a verse. Uh, a verse. He wrote verse. Verses in his childhood and uh, made some money by writing up birthday cards and whatnot. Hmm. And he did it a lot. So much that he actually got the awesome nickname Scribbler General. <laughs> That's great. I know. Uh, So in 1803, William Miller uh, married Lucy P. Smith, and the couple moved to Pulteney, Vermont. Hmm. Interestingly, Lucy's parents were some of the first settlers in the area, which means that Miller was basically marrying a town. Everyone was super close-knit. Oh, yeah. Okay. But this worked in his favor, because he used these connections to make liberal use of everything in the Pulteney library. Fucking liberal. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. But that wasn't the only thing that William Miller was up to. He and Lucy had ten children together, eight of which survived, which is a fantastic batting average for that area. (laughs) So Miller spent a lot of time before and after his marriage to Lucy writing patriotic verse, Hmm. uh, which made him very popular in the community. He was appointed constable and then promoted to town sheriff where he served for 25 years. Whoa. Wow. Now that that didn't, a lot more is going on during this, but he kept the job for 25 years. So, uh, a little bit more about Pulteney. Pulteney's yes. community heads were deists, which if you don't know, it just means that you believe in God, but don't go in for religious interpretations of God's personality, will, or anything like that. Um, if you want to read something about deism, I recommend Thomas Paine's mm-hmm. Age of Reason. It'll give you a good picture of what deists think of religion, which, in short, is not positive. <laughs> 
Uh, yes. But doing as the Romans do, William Miller left his Christian background and became a deist until about 1816. Okay. Uh, but what troubled him about deism was the idea that individuals are annihilated at death with no hope of an afterlife, as well mm. as the deist's understanding of God as being a disinterested and inactive God. Okay. His Christian roots taught him to believe that God was involved in human affairs and that this was something he wasn't able to leave behind. Huh. Yeah. So that's where we'll leave William Miller for the time being. And when we come back to him, we'll watch him change and change and change. Shit. It's going to be interesting. I'm gonna say like so far I'm I'm, I'm blah, blah 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 so far I am on board with Mr. Miller mm-hmm uh, it's gonna go downhill isn't it it or uphill uh, it, it's uphill one of those gray area kind of things okay. yeah, yeah you'll see but I say we move over to John Mitten's early life All right. tell us a little bit about this rake so John Mitten was born on September 30th 1796 to a very wealthy British family Unfortunately for John, his dad died at the age of 30 when John was only two years old. Fortunately for John, this meant that he was left with the family inheritance, which was the mansion Halston Hall, roughly worth 4.3 million pounds in today's money. Wow. As well as the income from the surrounding agricultural rents, which would be about 720,000 pounds a year in today's money. Oh my god. The property was about 132,000 acres, so this baby is set. Oh yeah. (laughs) Oh yeah. Uh... Now, as a young boy, John was sent to Westminster School, but was not here for long. Uh, A year into school, John started fighting with one of the schoolmasters and was promptly kicked out. Wow. Yes. So from there, he was sent to Harrow School, but was expelled after three terms. What a harrowing experience. Yes. (laughs) Yes, it was. Uh, So his family decided to educate John with private tutors, but this, of course, did not work either. John regularly pranked and harassed his tutors. (laughs) In the most famous case, John brought a horse into the house and left it in the room with one of his tutors. That is hilarious. (laughs) Uh, So John kind of failed all attempts of being educated, but this did not stop him from being accepted to the University of Cambridge? Really? (laughs) I don't know how that works. Money? Uh, Money. (laughs) Yes. Uh, So as he left for Cambridge, he brought two thousand bottles of port to ensure <laughs> that he would be able to make it through his studies. He's a thirsty guy. Yeah. Oh uh, he didn't make it through. Oh. Uh, he soon found university life boring, so he dropped out with, without finishing and traveled around Europe. Cool. Uh, nothing too remarkable yet, but just wait. Okay. Yes. Well, I think that we're through, since we're through these early lives, I think we ought to take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk about William Miller's adult life. Hmm. What are you going to do during break? Uh, play with a monkey. Mm, I'll become a pancake. And with that, <laughs> we'll be back <laughs> to we talk about dead people after this short break. <clears throat> so when we lo- oh sorry, welcome back <laughs> to we talk about dead people. And when we left off, uh, we were talking about John Mitten's early life, and now we're going to be moving into William Miller's adult life. Ah, so anyway. When we left William Miller, he was in the deist paradise of Pulteney, Vermont, doing normal things. Hmm. Uh, But in 1810, he was commissioned as a lieutenant in the Vermont State Militia, which meant very little (laughs) uh, for about two years. Um, So then America got back into a war with Great Britain in what was known as the War of 1812, uh, and he was promoted to captain in the militia before he was transferred to the United States Army and made it back into into a lieutenant. Okay. All right. And as a lieutenant, he gathered a small army in Vermont and was made a captain again. Again. Yeah. So, just back and forth. Yeah. Captain, mm-hmm. Lieutenant. Captain, thing. Lieutenant. Captain, Got Lieutenant. It. Yeah. So, in 1814, he and his men gathered at uh, Plattsburgh, 
and had a battle Good. near Lake Champlain. Mm. And they were fighting off the British in a heroic engagement that actually helped turn the tide of the war and bring it all to a close. Oh, oh wow. Yeah. So he's a soldier. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and at this point, Miller was honorably discharged from the military and he moved back to Pulteney uh, before moving again to Lowhampton, New York to be with his parents. Hmm. There he built a home, which still exists today thanks to the Adventist Heritage Ministry. Cool. Uh, but William Miller was changing and he hadn't gotten over the fact that as a deist, he believed that life just ended and nothing came after. Right. Through further study, he decided to become a Christian again and delivered a speech to his fellow veterans of the war about heaven, hell, and scripture on the anniversary of the Battle of Plattsburgh. Hmm. He was so well-liked as a speaker, he came back a week later to read a sermon aloud on parenting by a guy named Alexander Proudfit. <laughs> yeah. um, that's kind of a change from, you know, heaven and hell to parenting. Yeah, but uh, I mean, hmm. th and that's the interesting part, because while he was reading this sermon, mm -hmm. he was absolutely devastated. Uh, apparently, while reading the sermon, he was overcome with emotion about his failings as a father and a human being. Oh. Um, he became convinced that he was a sinner, which is a hard thing when you're a deist, because they don't believe in sin most for the most part. Right. Um, his feelings are recorded by the following quote. <clears throat> quote. Annihilation was a cold and chilling thought, and accountability was sure destruction to all. The heavens were as brass over my head, and the earth as iron under my feet. Eternity! What was it? And death, what was that? Ah, uh, the more I reasoned, the further I was from my demonstration. The more I thought, the more scattered my... I can't do this voice anymore. The more scattered my, were my conclusions. I tried to stop thinking, but my thoughts would not be controlled. I was truly wretched, but did not understand the cause. I murmured and complained, but knew not of whom. I knew that there was wrong, but knew not how or where to find the right. I mourned, but without hope. Oh. Yeah. Somebody needs some ice cream. I know. So uh, then he began to remember what he had learned while reading to uh, learning to read. God damn it. What he had <laughs> learned while learning to read with his mother by the firelight. He remembered a story of a savior who could redeem him from his wickedness. And so he began to study the Bible again. He said, quote, and I'm not doing the voice this time. Okay. I saw that the Bible did bring to view just such a savior as I needed. And I was perplexed to find how an uninspired book should develop principles so perfectly adapted to the wants of a fallen world. I was constrained to admit that the scriptures must be a revelation from God. They became my delight, and in Jesus I found a friend. The Savior became to me the chiefest among ten thousand. The Bible now became my chief study, and I truly say I searched it with great delight. All right. Yeah. Now, Miller was a bit of a hard-headed deist, uh, so his study of the Bible was not exactly like a scripture highlighting montage from that hilarious film, God's Not Dead. Fuck! <laughs> no. There were no newsboys playing in the background, no light coming in from the windows, no tears of joy, nothing like that. No. William Miller studied the shit out of this thing uh, to find if it was consistent internally and if it was, and rather, if it managed to defeat his deistic criticisms. He described the Bible as, quote, a feast of reason. Hmm. Okay. It, well, it, I, I got to give a hand to him for doing that, at least, for, you know, dissecting the Bible to mm -hmm. see if it was worth believing in. Right, right. It yeah. wasn't just this he tried. thing. Yeah. And that's actually, we'll get more into that. But oh, okay. The unfortunate part, actually, oh. of that is that Miller studied a little too hard. What does that mean? So while he found that the message of Christianity was comforting and also to his liking, he also started to take the scripture very, very literally. Ah. Uh, in fact, while he was studying the Bible, he began to connect stories and prophecies in its pages with real life events going on around him. Mm. And he didn't stop. <laughs> yeah. He worked on interpreting prophecies and aligning them with the events of his day so hard that he eventually came to a, quote, solemn conclusion that in about 25 years from that time, all 
all the affairs of our present state would be wound up. Oh. Yeah, so <laughs> five more years of this prophecy led him uh, to conclude that the world was going to end in the year 1843. Huh. Yeah. Huh. So long way off because it's, you know, 1823. Okay. Um, and about actually in the same year of 1823, Miller actually began to share his views with his friends and relatives oh, up till now. Up till now, he hadn't sure. told anybody that he was doing this. And remember, he was an excellent speaker and a moving writer, so it didn't take him long to convince most of them that he was right. Hmm. Using vivid, 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 vivid imagery of the end times, Miller really got to some people. And here's an example from a letter he wrote uh, of just showing just how vivid some of his imaginings could be. Quote, Behold, the heavens grow black with clouds. The sun has veiled itself. The moon, pale and forsaken, hangs in middle air. The hail descends. The seven thunders utter loud their voices. The lightnings send their vivid gleams of sulfurous flame abroad. And the great city of nations, the great cities of the nations, sorry, <laughs> falls to rise no more forever and forever. At this dread moment, look, look, oh, look and see what means that ray of light. The clouds have burst asunder. The heavens appear. The great white throne is in sight. Amazement fills the universe with awe. He comes, he comes. Behold, the Savior comes. Lift up your heads, ye saints. He comes, he comes, he comes. Shit. Yeah. So That's... not something to sneer at. Whoa. He was extremely convincing. Yeah. Uh, and after converting his whole town, he felt absolutely convinced that it hit, it was his duty to spread his message to the whole nation. He started writing articles for the, the Vermont Telegraph in 1832 about his findings. Hmm. In the fall of the same year, he actually started preaching. Why? Well, he promised God that if he received any kind of speaking invitation... <laughs> He would accept it as a sign from the heavens that it was time to become a preacher. Ooh, and yep, okay. he got the invitation yeah. and his message caught on. <clears throat> In one year, he had eight new ministers passing along his message and over a hundred followers. Okay. That same year, he quit all of his other non-religious activities and became a full-time minister. Hmm. So he got his license to preach from his Baptist church and got a certificate saying that uh, around 80 Baptist ministers approved of his message. So he hits the road and starts preaching any claims in his autobiography that he converted, quote, infidels, deists, universalists, and sectarians. I, I only know what half of those mean. Yeah. <laughs> so he traveled over 4,500 miles in the course of two years from 1839 to 1841. Wait a minute. Isn't 1842 the big year? 1843. 1843. Yeah, we're getting there. Oh, I see. Yeah. So uh, it's 1841. He's still preaching his message about the coming of the end times within a couple of years. Whoa. Yeah. So it's 1841. It's coming. Yeah. The world's going to end, like right now, according to Miller, uh, in 1843. The date is fast approaching. Hmm. But his followers continue to increase their number and eventually he can't even hold his sermons in regular churches so he starts holding them from tents a lot like Billy Sunday huh. and eventually buys one that can hold 3,000 people that is a giant tent it's a giant ass tent <laughs> but it's not big enough Whoa. even with that kind of capacity his sermons are just overflowing with the faithful and the unfaithful alike Unfortunately for Miller, though, he was starting to hear some criticisms of his views, and these all started to get harsher and more frequent by the time the end of the world rolled around. Yeah. In 1843, just months before Miller believed it was all going to shit, he was getting tons of flack from other ministers who were condemning him for claiming that he had figured out the date of the end of the world. 
You see, Miller claimed the world was going to end in April of 1843, but he retracted this claim and replaced it with a span of time, like a few months, oh. in order to avoid being called a heretic by his fellow ministers. Ah. And if you don't know, scripture specifically says that no one will know when the world is going to end and the Lord will return. So Miller is really towing the line by claiming he's got it all figured out. Yeah. You know, you know. So yeah. you can probably see where this is going because, yep. you know, we're here today. Mm. Um, or are we? Or are we? Mm. Anyway, <laughs> Miller's <laughs> Followers are starting to be called Millerites, and the thing goes international. Oh, jeez. While small, there are records of Millerite representation in Great Britain, Australia, the Sandwich Islands, which are now called Hawaii, oh. and Tasmania. Whoa. <laughs> and then 1843 passes with a whimper. Nothing. Mm. Jesus is nowhere to be seen, and Miller decides that he erred, and he sets a specific date this time. So he's decided oh. that Jesus is coming back later. He, yeah. he misinterpreted some of the scriptures. Sure, something. okay, yeah. Uh, so it's going to be April 18th of 1844. Mm. So April 18th comes and goes and still no Jesus. But some guy named Samuel Snow shows up at Miller's increasingly disappointed meetings and presents his own interpretation of prophetic scripture, saying that he has calculated that the world will actually end on October 22nd, 1844. Huh. And I think they arrived at this one because that's like a... I think that's a holy day or something where they clean the... the the, um, what's it called? The closet? <laughs> the synagogue, that's oh, it. Yes. Or is it the synagogue, the temple, whatever. Um, Miller's followers uh, start giving everything away because they really buy it this time. Oh, no. And sometimes they bought more than they could afford oh, because no. they wouldn't be there, you know, to get hounded right. for their money after yeah. Jesus came back. Oh. Um, but he doesn't come back. Oh. Many Millerites followed Miller into a field where they sat and waited for 24 hours to see Jesus coming down from the clouds and he never did. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Reports of this are just as sad as you would think to read. Oh. Uh, so here's a quote from a guy named Henry Emmons. Um, and it's one of the saddest things I've read okay. in a while. See, he says, I waited all Tuesday, and dear Jesus did not come. I waited all the forenoon of Wednesday, and as well in body as I ever was. But after 12 o'clock, I began to feel faint. And before dark, I needed someone to help me up to my chamber, as my natural strength was leaving me very fast. I lay prostrate for two days without any pain, simply sick with disappointment. Oh, this event is oh. called the Great Disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> no. So Miller himself was pretty upset, understandably. Yeah. Uh, and he was made fun of all the time by people in the streets and even children who asked him if he'd just lost his ticket to go to heaven. Oh, that's so mean. I know. <laughs> A Millerite church was burned to the ground oh, and two whoa. others, and, you know, possibly by mobs, possibly by followers. Yeah. Um, two others suffered broken windows and graffiti. A mob in Illinois attacked a Millerite congregation with blunt weapons and even knives. Jeez. While another congregation in Toronto, the whole congregation was tarred and feathered. Whoa. Yeah. Not cool. Not cool. Like, what did you have to lose? Yeah, exactly. The uh, congregation's the one who lost it all. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, Millerites are still very disappointed. And they coped with it in some interesting ways. And this is where it gets kind of funny. Okay. Um, so some just actually stayed out in the fields and just kept waiting. Mm. Yeah. Some theorized that the world had not ended, but had instead entered what they called the Great Sabbath, which led them to stop working altogether in order to recognize the Sabbath properly. Oh. Think about James. Some started yes. literally behaving like children. 
uh, because there's a Bible verse uh, in Mark that says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Okay. So they just started <laughs> acting like children, uh. which is kind of weird. I, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. This is all from his autobiography. It was very disturbing. Uh, one Millerite taught his followers that Jesus was just literally chilling on a cloud over America waiting for his people to pray him down. Pray him down. Yeah, pray uh. him down. <laughs> <laughs> don't jump, just come on down. We'll have a beer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so in this madness, most Millerites just gave up on the whole thing and joined other churches. Many became shakers, but Ooh. the Millerites who remained uh, became deeply divided. Hmm. One group popularized the shut door theory, which basically says that the door to heaven had been shut. Well, that's depressing. Yeah, because they, I guess they didn't pray hard enough or something like that. Uh, the other group said that this was nonsense and that Jesus was still coming, but they just didn't know when. So Miller joins this group, and the other group just kind of fades away. Hmm. The surviving group is the root of the Adventist Christian Church and the Seventh-day Adventists. Oh, wow. And they're still around and kicking. Yeah, they are still alive and kicking. Yeah. And the great thing about it is they're not trying to hide this history either. I'm like, oh. there are so many churches out there that just like... You know, we right. have some nasty stuff in our history, but we minimize it. We don't talk about it. But yeah. these guys, I mean, they have on their websites just all this stuff about William, really? William Miller. Oh, and good for them. His false predictions, which I just think, I think that's great. Yeah. Be honest. Yeah. Um, but that's where we'll leave William Miller for now. And when we come back, we'll talk about his final days. Uh, hmm. Shall we just roll right over to John Mitten, or would you like to take a break? Let's roll into him. Let's roll into John Mitten! Yes. John Mitten's adult life. Yes. <laughs> uh, so, remember, where was John Mitten? He had just failed all of school. Right. Uh, he, was in, <laughs> he was in Cambridge. Drinking 2,000 bottles of port. Yes, and mm -hmm. then he dropped out because he was boring. But he's still a rich son of a bitch. He is. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Uh, so, having failed in the life of academics, Mitten did what anyone who dropped out of school would do. He joined the army. Oh, classic move. <laughs> uh, at the age of 16, John was commissioned as a captain in the Oswestry Rangers Regiment, which was eventually merged into the North Shropshire Yemenry Cavalry. None of this is important. That's, uh, that's... Then John was placed with the 7th Hussars Cavalry Unit. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Basically, he was sent to France uh, to occupy the country because Napoleon had just been defeated only a few years prior. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. Then he was placed back in England and made a major. For what? I don't know. He just went in and sat down. Basically, <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Okay. Uh, however, John wanted to be more than just a major and asked his commanding officer if he could take the place of his uncle who had just left the army and was higher up in the military food chain. Oh! The request was denied because oh. that's not how the military no. works. <laughs> uh, so then John left the army... Kind of. Kind of? <laughs> uh, for the rest of his life, he was still technically on reserve. Wow. But he's not in the army anymore. Okay. Uh, so he returns home to his family's mansion in anticipation to his 21st birthday. That's a big day. Because what happens then? He inherits all the wealth of the estate. Oh, I was, see, I was thinking he would get to drink, but then I remembered it was... Britain, and then yeah. I remembered that probably they didn't have... Did they have age laws? I don't probably know. not. Probably not. Who knows? No. Whatever. Anyway, so at 21, he gets all this wealth. Okay. Uh, so he starts to fulfill his squire duties in preparation, and this includes the job of getting married. Okay. So John marries a nice aristocratic girl who dies two years later. Oh, that sucks. Mm. Then he married another gal who runs away a few <laughs> oh years God. later. Oh. And why did she run away? Here's where things get really weird. Okay. <laughs> uh, so now John is of age and he gets the mansion and all the money and does what rich, crazy people do. Uh, donate to Pat Robertson. Oh, uh, well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> said that. Can we cut that? Yeah. <laughs> Now, John is of age, and he gets the mansion, and all of the money, and does what rich, crazy people do. Oh, uh, they buy islands. Well, kind of. Um, 
he decides to become a politician. Uh, oh! <laughs> so no man is an island except for politicians? I can think of a few politicians who are islands. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. So he becomes a politician. Yes. And he joins the Tory party and tries to join parliament. Nice! And he pays voters ten pounds if they vote for him. <laughs> <laughs> and he spends about would be what would be equivalent to 750,000 pounds in today's money. That has to be against the law. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, but he wins the election. Oh! <laughs> he then attends a meeting at the House of Commons, but after only 30 minutes, he gets super bored because of all the never-ending debates, and also has trouble hearing what the hell is going on because he is somewhat deaf. Oh. He did not seek re-election. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> and he left the meeting after those 30 minutes. Really? Yep. <laughs> wow. So instead, uh, he goes on to serve as High Sheriff of Marion Shire for a couple years, and then High Sheriff of Spropshire for a few more years, and then Mayor of Oswestry for a little bit. He's, a, he's just mayor in everywhere. Yep. <laughs> mayor in all over the place. <laughs> Uh, after this, though, he decides to again run for Parliament seat, this what? time in 1831, and also as a Whig this time, rather than a Tory. Uh, is it gonna be less boring if you're a Whig and not a Tory? Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. He dropped out only five days into the election Wh process. What? It, he came in as the least supported candidate with only 376 votes. Wow, I guess he didn't pay him this time. I guess, but he was kind of upset about this, and he made a proclamation that he would contest the next parliamentary election, which would be in a year. But spoil, spoiler alert, he would not be around when this next election takes place. What? He would be in exile. Oh! oh. And why would he be in exile? Oh. Because he was heavily in debt and was forced to flee his creditors. How do you spend <laughs> all that money? Yes. So somehow, in a matter of a few years, John has to lose basically all of his money. Now remember that he has an estate with over 132,000 acres, makes about 720,000 pounds a year from rent in modern terms, and also inherited a shit ton of money. Uh-huh. So to put it bluntly, John was kind of insane. Oh, oh! <laughs> so let's talk about his insanity, shall we? Okay, so does this insanity have to do with how he lost his money then? Yes. Okay, cool. Let's yes. go. Uh, so let's talk about his horse racing addiction first. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was addicted to horse racing. Okay. <laughs> he owned quite a few horses, and one of them, named Euphrates, nice. actually won the gold cup at Litchfield, but this is boring, so moving on. Okay. Uh, in one instance, in order to win a bet, John rode a horse into the Bedford Hotel, rode it up the grand staircase, onto the balcony, and then jumped what? while still riding what it. What the fuck? Off the balcony over the diners in the restaurant below, landed, and then exited the hotel to join with uh, the parade that was going on outside. The horse didn't die? No! That's insane! <laughs> Holy shit! Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <addition>, Boing! <laughs> yeah, imagine if you're just eating there, and then this clip-cloppity-clop up the stairs, and then... No, I don't, over your, over head. your head. Oh my god. Yeah. Uh, in addition, John's favorite horse, Baronet, had free range inside of John's mansion, what? and the two would often lay in front of the fire together. Aww, <laughs> that's kind of sweet. Let's yeah. Maybe Although, a little dirty, but... Well, there's another story where he got drunk with his horse, uh, a, a different horse, uh, and forced the horse to drink, and the horse died. Oh, oh yeah. no! <laughs> no! Yeah, it's... Oh, 
lot of strange stories. This is terrible. Uh, okay, so let's move off of the horse Tell racing. Tell me more. <laughs> uh, John also really, really liked hunting, particularly ducks and foxes. Oh, that makes sense, since mm -hmm. he's pictured as a yeah. hunter. Okay. Yeah, you know, rich 19th century Englishman. Yeah. Except, on fox hunts, John would use some of his dogs to track down the foxes. Typical, okay. right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, John owned 2,000 dogs. How the fuck? <laughs> I know. How the fuck do you just own 2,000 so dogs? Oh. Uh, further, his favorite dogs would also be brought to the dinner table, given steak to eat and champagne to drink, what? and would often be dressed uh. in costumes. <laughs> This is reminding me of P.T. Barnum a yeah, little bit. Yeah, seriously. Oh, my God. Uh, so, anyway, on these fox hunts, John would usually begin the hunts fully dressed, <laughs> but would finish completely <laughs> naked. <laughs> what? As the hunt progressed, John would accordingly strip off certain parts what? of his clothing until he was fully naked. What? 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 <laughs> the only the only reason I could find was that he got really excited. Like, not in a sexual way, but just like, I'm hunting foxes! Throws off his shirt. Oh my throws God. off his belt. Well, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we've got a naked hunter. <laughs> yeah. Um, so those were the fox hunts. Okay. Now, duck hunts were equally odd. John would hunt in the middle of the night and by himself, usually. <laughs> what usually happened is that he would go out into the snowy, frozen wasteland, completely naked, of course, fire a few shots at the ducks, and then return to go back to bed. Now that's just terrorism. <laughs> <laughs> and then he, half an hour later, John would wake up and continue the whole process again. Oh my god! <laughs> and he'd do this all throughout the night. Wow. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, when not feeling up for a hunt himself, John would order his stable boys to put ice skates on and chase rats around. Uh, what? <laughs> There's no more to say. <laughs> That's it? Yeah. Oh. So, no, what's odd is that for a man who preferred to hunt naked, John had quite a bit of hunting clothes. Um. He owned 150 pairs of hunting pants, 700 pairs of handmade hunting boots. Wow. A thousand hats. <laughs> and 3,000 shirts. Oh. Are you starting to see how this man lost all of his money. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, I am. But there's so much to say, so much more to say about him. Uh, John also enjoyed racing carriages around his property and would purposely aim for ditches and potholes in order to see what would happen. <laughs> <laughs> okay. In one case, he drove the carriage at, a, at high speed towards a toll gate in order to see if a horse pulling a carriage could jump the toll gate. Uh, could it? It could not. Okay. <laughs> There's actually there's a great drawing of the horse just slumped over the toll gate. Oh. It's kind of sad. Uh, yes. So find your spot. <laughs> In another case, some poor fucker somehow ended up as a passenger oh, in John's no. carriage. Oh, God. John, driving the carriage, turned around and asked the man whether or not he had ever been upset by the driving of a carriage driver. Oh. The man said that he had not. To which John replied, "What?" What a damn slow fellow you must have been all of your life. <laughs> John then immediately turned his carriage to drive up a steep hill at full speed. Both he and the passenger were promptly thrown out of the carriage and tumbled down the hill. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So if you haven't caught on already, John really liked pranks and accidents. Ah! In fact, one writer said of John, not only did he mind not mind accidents, he positively liked them. It's <laughs> interesting. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, visitors to John's mansions were mansion were often subject to various pranks, but not all of them were bad. Oh, okay. Uh, for example, John would hide banknotes and cash all throughout his mansion for guests to find That's and use awesome. as they please. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, he also would give his servants extra spend 
spending money for no real reason. Nice. Yeah. In fact, speaking about John and money, one time he won a bunch of money at the racetrack and then rode in a carriage back home. However, the wind from the carriage <laughs> blew the money out of John's hands and he just watched as it blew away. <laughs> He doesn't really understand money. <laughs> oh, see, this guy would be amazing on YouTube. Oh, be, yeah. I'm going to plant a dollar in my servant's coat. <laughs> see what they do. Like, rate, and subscribe. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Oh. Uh, anyway, the, another story. One time, John had a bunch of visitors over to his mansion for a fancy dinner. As his guests were waiting for his arrival, John suddenly came bursting into the room wearing full hunting regalia and riding a bear. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a bear. Wow. Oh he my continued God. to ride this bear around the house as the guests just kind of watched. <laughs> Eventually, the bear stopped, so John thrust his spurs into the bear's side, no. and the bear promptly bit through his leg. Oh, oh Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the dinner had been ruined, but John kept the bear as a pet and named her Nell. Aww. Yeah. Uh, some days later, a horse dealer was visiting John and got very drunk as the two talked or whatever. The next day, the horse dealer woke up in a bed to find two bulldogs to the left of him and the bear Nell to the right of him. Oh, that would freak me the hell <laughs> yeah. out. Wow. Oh. Okay. Oh yeah, John also had a pet monkey and the two would often get drunk together. <laughs> <laughs> of course he did. That's amazing. Oh, did the know. monkey have a name? I don't know. It I definitely had a name. That's I mean, awesome. There, this guy named this guy with the pen name Nimrod <laughs> wrote an auto or a biography of John, and I haven't written it, read it. Nah, I can't talk. I haven't read it, but it's out there. So okay, yeah. Uh, at another fancy dinner, John had invited a bunch of guests over, and everything went pretty smoothly. Okay, no bears this time. Okay. Uh, then the time came for the guests to leave, and so they all began down the road away from John's mansion. Uh oh. John, meanwhile, had quickly dressed up as a highway man, jumped onto a horse, armed himself with pistols, and began chasing down the departing guests. Oh! As he reached them, John fired both pistols into the air right above the guest's head, and then yelled, STAND AND DELIVER! Oh my god! <laughs> he then, wow. Yeah, then he chased them all the way back to the nearest town. <laughs> That's just a prank, bro! Yeah. Oh my god. Wow. Oh. Okay. Uh, another story of John is that one night he went on a stroll and came across a beggar on his estate. He proceeded to change clothes with the beggar and then returned to his mansion wearing the man's rags. He begged his own servants to give him some food, to which they refused because they did not recognize him. Wow. When the servants tried to forcibly escort John out of the mansion, he started throwing punches, and the servants had to make John's own dogs chase John out of the building. What? <laughs> Uh, it's weird, but this kind of leads into the next thing about John. Oh, okay. Life uh, in the streets. Yeah. <laughs> no. Well, no, he's back now. Not quite. Okay. And apparently he was very strong and really enjoyed a good fight. Okay. During one of his hunts, John came across a rugged, tough miner who had somehow disturbed the hunt. Uh, okay. Uh, the two started fighting, and after 20 minutes, the miner was forced to surrender. Wow. John gave him 10 shillings and told him to be on his way. Ah, okay. John uh. also... <laughs> yeah. John also enjoyed wrestling with his many dogs and would often be found on all fours biting the dogs that were fighting ah, him. Wah! Uh, yeah. <laughs> and Nimrod, his biographer, said that one time he walked in and John was, you know, biting the dogs. Then he stood up, holding a fully grown dog in his teeth <laughs> <laughs> as the dog was, like, you know, trying to get away. Just wow. weird shit. That's, that's <laughs> sad for the dog. Yeah. But hilarious for us. <laughs> exactly. Oh my god. Eventually, though, John began to run out of money. Okay. His agent eventually confronted him and said that if John could reduce his expenditure to £6,000 a year, the estate would not have to be sold. 
John responded by declaring, I wouldn't give a damn to live on 6,000 pounds a year. What? (laughs) So to flee his creditors, John was forced to escape to France. Here he met a nice looking young woman and paid her 500 pounds a year to be his companion. Okay. And she agreed. Uh, Okay. Uh, Now, while in France, John got the hiccups one night. (laughs) These stories are so random. I know. (laughs) Yeah. So he has the hiccups and he was so annoyed by them that he did the only thing he could think of. He said... Damn this hiccup, but I'll frighten it away! Uh, okay, how are you going to do that, John? Uh, he proceeded to grab a candle and light his cotton shirt on fire. What the fuck? <laughs> John was immediately a raging inferno of a man, and a servant and a guest had to save John by beating out the flames. <laughs> Oh my god. John then exclaimed, The hiccup is gone, my god! <laughs> and went to bed naked. <laughs> uh, the, okay. ne- the next day, John was found, quote, Not only shirtless, but sheetless, with the skin of his breast, shoulders, and knees of the same color as a newly sh- singed bacon hog. <laughs> uh, and that is where we'll leave John for now, I suppose. Penniless in France and seared like a good strip of bacon. And w- totally insane. Wow. That's amazing. Well, that was a big change from William Miller. Yeah, kind of oh. kind of lighthearted for a change. Yeah, that's nice. Okay, but I say we take a break, and when we come back, we'll talk about William Miller's end in death and John Mitten's end in death. Sounds like a plan. Sweet. And we are back to we talk about dead people, and when we left off, we had just finished talking about John Mitten's adult life, and now we're going to be moving into William Miller's end and death. And when we left William Miller, he was very disappointed that Jesus had not come back when, <laughs> when he had predicted. Yeah. Yeah, multiple times. Right. Oh, but in the following months, he uh, of, after his failed prediction, he chose not to give up. No. He set a new date in the spring of 1845. But in March of that year, J.V. Himes, a follower of Miller's, visited him at his home in Lowhampton and just said, Stop. <laughs> You've got to stop trying to predict when Jesus is coming back. Good. And Miller changed his mind. Oh, really? Yeah, but his followers didn't. They were still convinced that it was, you know, part of their duty to figure out when I was coming back through Holy Prophecy or whatever. Uh, After 1844, however, William Miller was on the downward path in his health. Mm. He stopped preaching so much and eventually lost his ability to read or write due to poor eyesight, which is so sad because those were his two favorite things to do. Um, In his last years, he built a new church for his Adventist followers because they were no longer allowed to go to their Baptist churches because essentially they were heretics. Right. Um, His health continued to fail, and in December of 1849, Miller died. Hmm. His last words were as follows. Tell the brethren we are right. The coming of the Lord draweth nigh, but they must be patient and wait for him. Hmm. Yeah. So he was buried in Lowhampton. His gravestone is marked with scripture, the last of which comes from Daniel 12, 13, which reads, but go thy way till the end be. Wait. Yeah. But this is hard to read. You got it. It's old. <laughs> but go thou, thou thy way till the end be, for thou shalt rest and stand in thy lot at the end of the days. Hmm. Now, yeah. Miller's legacy is as follows. The Advent Christian Church, a sect sprung from Millerism, has 61,000 members, and the Seventh-day Adventist Church has over 19 million. Shit. Yeah. There are other much smaller groups, uh, including one created by one of his followers named Clorinda S. Minor. Huh. Um, she was so deeply affected by the Great Disappointment that she went to Palestine to wait for the real coming of Christ, oh, wow. and she waited there until she died. Oh. That's where I'm going to quit, because that's how it's going to be. Wow. Um, so tell us, how did uh, John Mitten die? Well, first I got to say about Miller, like, you feel bad for the guy, because it seems like he really believed this. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, there's so many 
people like televangelists or whatnot, who yeah. you know it's just a scam, and you know they know it's just a scam. Yeah. But Miller sounds like he really believed this, which makes it so much more sad. That's what's the interesting thing about him, because clearly he was philosophically... Inclined. Inclined. Yeah. Because he was, you know, he was a deist, and then it wasn't good enough for him. He wanted yeah. to examine it more. Um, but the real problem came in when he started, you know, taking it beyond philosophy into prophecy mm. uh, and seeing and whatnot. And it's, it's like, right. You know, that's when it. That's. I don't know where he crossed that bridge, but it wasn't clear when I was researching it. It's interesting. Mm. But yeah. anyway, so tell us how John Mitten died. All right, back to John Minton. Uh, eventually, John decided to return home back to England, but because he was heavily in debt, John ended up at the King's Bench Debtors Prison in London. Oh, he's in prison? <laughs> yeah. Uh, he died here a year later in 1834 from liver disease. Oh, he missed the end of the world by, what's that, nine years? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, a funeral was held for him, and over 3,000 people attended. Wow. Quite a few people liked him. Yeah. Uh, it is estimated that in today's money, John spent over 20 million pounds in 15 years and utterly destroyed his inheritance. Wow. Uh, still though, John Minton is remembered quite fondly. Uh, he is often referred to as Mad Jack. Nice. And there are dozens of pubs, roads, trails, and houses named after him in England. Awesome. Also, the University of Minnesota apparently has or had an event called the Jack Mitten Run, <laughs> which is an annual streaking event for the students. <laughs> Although it looks like the police have shut it down in the last few years. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. Wow. What a day. What are you yeah. going to do for the rest of the day, James? Well, unfortunately, I have to go pick up pickles from prison again. What the fuck did he do this time? Uh, he broke into that convenience store down on 23rd. Really? Did yeah. he break the window again? No, he broke the roof. Oh, my God. <laughs> no. Oh, shit. Just went right in the top. What a fucker. Stole all the booze and condoms. Yeah. <laughs> Piece of shit. Did he really? Yep. Um, what does he use those for anyway? I don't want to know. I don't want to know either. Uh, yeah. Well, with that note, I think it's time to bring the show to an end for today. Feel free to send all your hate mail to we talk about dead people podcast at gmail.com. We will read all of it and not along. If you hate us, you're probably right. If you like us, though, please consider funding the show by becoming a patron on patreon.com. That's patreon.com slash we talk about dead people. There's even a link in the description for your convenience. Even as little as a dollar, as much as it costs to donate a dollar to us helps tremendously. Our cover art was created by the extremely gifted Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration. You can view more of his uh, phenomenal work at www.ipattersonillustration.com. With all that being said, we'll close out and let the sounds of John Mitten play you out. <laughs> it's the slapping noise. <laughs> Sung by Robert Carr, Edison Records. The campfire is smoldering and in its dim light, this one who is the